Welcome to Jesus Without Religion. I'm Mike Sinar, your host, and I'm glad you're joining us today as we discover Jesus through the filter of grace. If you are a Christian, you are about to see the love of Christ like you've never seen before. Never again will you fear God or feel that you are inadequate or not deeply loved by Him. We know some people call that a license to sin, but as we go through this series, you're actually going to find out that soaking in God's kindness and total forgiveness of all sin, yes, all sin, is the only prescription that will actually lead you away from the disease of sin. And welcome back again to the Jesus Without Religion podcast. It is good to be here. Tonight's podcast will be resuming our Bible study in Hebrews. We've now uh, worked our way through the first six chapters, and we'll be diving into chapter seven. Um, each episode, I like to remind everyone, um, if you've never really heard a thorough study uh, from the book of Hebrews, it's really, really important that, if, if at all possible, you would consider uh, starting at chapter one. Go back a few podcasts. And make sure you listen to our entire teaching to get, we want to make sure that you get the context, that you get your brain wrapped around what's really happening in this letter. You know, uh, Hebrews has been often used uh, to scare Christians, to make Christians think that uh, they, uh, they could lose their salvation. And what we've been illustrating for six chapters, and we're going to continue to do it um, in chapter seven here, is that. We haven't seen any mention of outward sin. We haven't. The only type of sin that has been discussed so far in six chapters has been the sin of unbelief. It's all been about inward sin. And again, people are using these letters uh, in Hebrews to scare us into thinking, well, God's going to get you. They're using it to scare you into thinking God's going to revoke your salvation. And today we're actually going to be seeing another problem. We're going to Talk about some uh, commonly uh, common verses that are misused uh, as tithing requirements. And at the end of this, we're also going to talk about two covenants. We're going to be talking about a new one, and we're going to be talking about an old one in chapter 7. So I want to go ahead and um, start by reading something out of Genesis. So if you want to, if you got a Bible on you and you want to follow, we're going to read this story about this man named Melchizedek. It comes out of Genesis chapter 14, and it's verses 17 17 through 24. Now, I will tell you, I'm probably going to chop up uh, a little bit of the couple names here, but that's okay. Um, It's probably in the first sentence, actually. It reads this, Genesis chapter 14, starting at verse 17. Uh, And this will sort of lay the uh, groundwork for what we're going to read here in chapter 7. So after Abraham had returned from defeating Kedorlaomer, and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, "Blessed be Abraham. I'm sorry. Blessed be Abram." by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, 
who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Wow, this guy Melchizedek comes out of nowhere, right? In Genesis chapter 14, Abram gives him a tenth of everything. This is some weird stuff, and we're going we're gonna to really tie this up, wrap it up, and put a bow on it here so it all makes sense. Then it goes on and says, The king of Saddam said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Saddam, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, uh, Eskol, and uh, Mamre. Uh, let them have their share. So with that groundwork laid, let's dive headfirst now into Hebrews chapter 7. We'll begin by reading verse 1. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, Abraham, just to put some legs on this, Abraham has just gone out to war and he's won a battle. And he runs into good old Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which, by the way, is in Jerusalem. So that's what's happened so far. Now, what do we see here? A couple of things I want to point out. We see that he gave uh, a 10% tithe. And, and when we read that in, from uh, Genesis, it's often used to tell us we need to tithe. But I want you to notice something. Did anyone read where there was a command in that story? Was there one mention of God saying, so you too need to be given 10%? Do you see it? And the answer is no. There is no command there. So, and again, what am I saying? This was just traditional kind of stuff here uh, as we respected people. Was this Abraham's money or was it money that he took from other people was it, well, we know what it was. It was money from the spoils of war. And how many times do we know of Abraham giving this tithe? Well, we know that he did it one time. So what's really going on in this verse, and what's the point of Abraham giving this tithe? I want you to remember those comparisons we've been reading about. Remember Moses versus Jesus. Remember angels versus Jesus. And soon we're going to see that this isn't about a tithe at all. It's not about a command or, you know, just try to tithe. But rather, it's about how the old, how the law, the old covenant is inferior to the new covenant, Jesus. And it's consistent with everything we've been reading in Hebrews. There's this continual drawing a line. Hey, Moses brought in the law, Jesus brought in the new covenant. Who's greater? Jesus. So which one, which covenant should we be paying attention to? Angels ordained the law. Guess what? Jesus ordained the new covenant. So which covenant should we be paying closer attention to? 
And that's what we're going to see is really going on with the storyline about Melchizedek. So let's continue. Then verse 2, he says this, To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all spoils. Well, first of all, by the translation of his name, he's king of righteousness and also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Look, maybe he's Jesus. I happen to think he is. But look, maybe he's just a type of Christ. The reality is we don't know, and I'm not going to be overly dogmatic on anything that I don't know, but I am going to be dogmatic on what the scriptures are telling us here. So verse 3 says, check this out. This is Melchizedek. He was without a father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So now I want you to imagine for a minute a Jewish person reading this, right? They're reading Old Testament scripture about Abraham, a Jewish man respecting Melchizedek, a non-Jewish man without father, mother, genealogy. Look, the Jewish people would have got this. They would have said, what in the world is Abraham doing? Why is Abraham paying a tithe to Melchizedek? He's not even Jewish. And we're going to get the answer plain and simple without a bunch of religious garbage trying to make you give some money uh, at the local church. And and again, I'm not anti-giving. I absolutely think we should give. Give from the heart. Give where there's need. Give from your abundance. But don't feel pressured to give 10%. The scriptures don't call you to do that. And that's not what we're reading here. We'll prove it. Verse 4, then he says this. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. So the emphasis here is on how great Melchizedek was. Jewish people would not like that. What? Melchizedek greater than Abraham? Get out of here. But what makes him great? Well, it's that he was either a type of Christ and maybe even the Christ himself. And then verse 5, he says this. He says, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. Now, the only ones to normally collect tithes, right, were Levites. They were the sons of Levi. So the question has to be asked by the Jewish people, why in the heck is Melchizedek getting a tithe from Abraham? Yo, this guy's not a this guy's not a Levite. What the this is not making sense to many people teaching it today, but the Jewish people would have serious questions that they would be asking. So then in verse 6 and 7 it says this. It says But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. What's the point? The law comes through Abraham and he is the lesser, right? Mel, a picture of Christ, 
is greater. The new is greater than the old. The old is paying respect to the new, not the other way around. So the writer is brilliantly keeping consistent with the same messages he's been teaching us in the first six chapters. He's teaching it the same way. We're seeing a competition between two, an old and a new, and your goal is to figure out, well, which one, which one do you need to be paying attention to? Which one is greater? And then verse 8 through 10, he says this, In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Get this, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So Levi, look, I'm not trying to get weird here. This is called what it is. Levi was still sperm, right? He was, uh, he will be Abraham's descendant. Levi is in Abraham. So he who receives the tithe is also giving a tithe to Melchizedek. So we're seeing a competition of two priests. We're seeing competition of two covenants. And we're supposed to be figuring out from this, so which one is greater, the law or the new covenant through Christ? So then verse 11 says this, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, (coughs) excuse me, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aram. If the law worked, we wouldn't need another way. The point is the law was weak and it was useless. And all it really does is kill you. So here here comes the point. I think the writer's going to sum it up of the last 11 verses that we just read. Right? So, verse 12, here it is. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So, the Old Testament is the Word of God, and it's great for teaching. But what do you teach about it? Women, are you teaching that women can't leave their home at a certain time of the month? Are you teaching people that they're going to get swallowed by a whale? What are you teaching that they can't mix certain fabrics? Or are we just teaching being under the law? It's all old, right? It's all old. It's fading. It's soon disappearing. But my friends, all of it points to Jesus. It's just a shadow of the real thing. The priest changed and the law has changed. So therefore, we are dead to the law. We are not under the law. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Then verses 13 through 16 says this, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Get it? Not the tribe of Levi. That's a big deal. From which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses, now what did Moses bring in? The Ten Commandments, right? 
a tribe to which reference to Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises to the according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. The physical requirement was you had to be from the tribe of Levi. It was unacceptable. That was the deal if you were going to be a priest of the law. If you were not a tribe from the tribe, excuse me, if you were not from the tribe of Levi, you were not qualified to be a priest under their law. Jesus broke the law. Jesus was not a Levite, but hey, guess what? Newsflash. Jesus is indeed greater than Moses. He's greater than the angels, and yet he's greater than the law. So verse 17 then says this, he says, for it is attested to of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Not according to the order of Levi, but now for a few verses, you're never going to hear legalists quoting about on Facebook or Instagram accounts. You're not going to hear the, the legalists preaching sermons on this. You ready? Let's go. Verse 18. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment. Why? Because of its weakness and uselessness. What is the former commandment? My friends, it's the law. All of it. Not some of it, as some might suggest. That is not what we are being told. We do not see any teaching that we are free from certain segments of the law. We never see. It's not about dietary law. It's not about a ceremonial law. It's the law. All of it. Put it all in one big, giant garbage can and throw it away. It is weak and it is useless. It has been set aside. Now, why is it set aside? Again, because it's weak and useless. It doesn't fix us, folks. Guess what? What fixes us? Jesus does. He's our perfecter. He's our life. He's what shows us right and wrong. He's our guide for daily living. We don't need the law to guide us, to teach us, or to grow us. We simply need Jesus. Verse 19, he says, For the law made nothing perfect, absolutely nothing. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in, get this, of a better hope. That's Christ. He's the better hope through which we draw near to God. So he's saying you don't draw near to God through the law and you trying to keep a bunch of rules, including the Mosaic commandment, the Mosaic law. We draw near to God through Christ. I'm going to fast forward a little bit and read what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. He says, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, so then back to chapter 7, verse 20 and 21, he says, And inasmuch as it was, was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now remember chapter six, who did God make the promise with and swear by? God could swear by no one greater. So he swore by himself. God swore to God. 
So verse 22, and he, sa- he then says, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now, what he's saying is, look, your ability to avoid sin is not what guarantees your salvation. Jesus and his blood is the only thing that guarantees your salvation. He always intercedes and we are safe under the new covenant. Because newsflash, it's not about you and your promise keeping. It's about God and his promise keeping. A couple more verses here. Verse 23 and 25, he says, The former priests, on the other hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death. Something happened to every single one of these guys, right? The priests, they always ended up dead and in a box. So they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds the priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know, we don't get closer to God by more effort or less sin. We get there through Jesus. No more sacrifices because this one was perfect once for all. And because he continues forever, because he always lives to make intercession, your salvation is rock solid. All right. So then verse 26 through 28, and that'll wrap these up. It says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first uh, for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because why not? Because This he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. But with the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. What's the takeaway there, my friends? The law is weak. It appoints men as its priest. It's ordained by angels, right? The new covenant is perfect, and God anointed Jesus as a priest. What is the point? Well, the point is very simple. Jesus is greater than the law, and this is a wildly awesome logical reason for the Jewish people to hear this message, to abandon the law, and grab onto the new covenant to put their trust and their confidence for their salvation in Jesus Christ alone. God bless you all.